Well, good morning. It's wonderful to be here with you today. This is a, a special Sunday for all kinds of reasons. It's Pentecost Sunday. We've got some information about that in the bulletin. It's also Graduate Sunday, and so we're going to have a special recognition of our graduates. But what's most special about this day is it's the Lord's Day. And we gather here to worship Him today. I welcome you to this time of worship here today. Uh, please do sign the friendship folder while you're doing that and passing that down. I've got some announcements to make. First of all, we want to make a, a couple announcements of recognition. Uh, uh, if I could have Dave and Catherine Simpson stand up. This is their 10th uh, anniversary this Friday, and so we rejoice with them. Please join with me. We are blessed with the gift of marriage by God, and we, we rejoice when we see marriages that are strong and doing well, and it's a good and wonderful picture of Christ and his bride, the church, and so we are thankful for that. We're also thankful for the children of our congregation, and we need to recognize a couple of them. Grace Holmberg will be 13 on Saturday, and Jennifer Lauderball will be 11 on Wednesday. So they're among our uh, baptized children, and so we rejoice with them at their birthdays that are this week, and we Remember to keep them in our prayers, not just at their birthdays, but throughout the years we've committed to be a part of their spiritual upbringing. And so uh, keep these two uh, young ladies in your prayers this week, but keep all the covenant children of our church in your prayers all the time. A couple different things I just wanted to point out to you that are uh, in the bulletin. Uh, Mug and Muffin, the women's, women's summer study, is... is uh, up and up and running for signing up for that so definitely sign up for that if that's something you're interested in another thing to sign up for is a man of mama's ministry that's for helping provide meals for those who who need help with that we can make meals for uh, shut-ins and folks that are are uh, having medical difficulties and such so so please do sign up to to help out with that anybody's welcome to help out with that ministry and uh, as I said before, this is Graduate Sunday, so we're going to have uh, a quick recognition of our graduates now before we begin our worship service. Uh, I'd just like to ask Don Heitman, our Director of Children's Ministry, to come up. And we, we present uh, certain things to our graduates each year. For our high school graduates, we present uh, an ESV Reformation Study Bible. And for college graduates, uh, we, we present the uh, Vines Expository Dictionary, so, uh, or the Unger's Bible Dictionary, I believe, right? It's the Unger's Bible Dictionary that we present. So I just want to recognize the graduates. I'm going to ask the graduates to come forward and, and receive your, your book and then stand up front. Uh, if we could have Sarah Couturier come up. Sarah is graduating uh, our, from college, and so she will get uh, the Unger's Bible Dictionary. We're excited to have Sarah with us. She's been worshiping with us for quite a while now, and it's excited to have her as a part of our congregation. And then the rest of these are high school graduates. I'm going to ask you all to come up and receive your Bibles. Garrett Ebert, Anna Holmberg, Alyssa Jimenez, Tyler Smith, and Alexandra Yorks. It's a blessing for us to have younger folks becoming older folks and reaching this level of 
level of achievement. And so we rejoice with them at the achievement that they've attained in graduating. Uh, we celebrate with them, and we keep them in our prayers. If you would all stand up front here, and uh, everyone, please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these graduates. We thank you for your faithfulness to them as they have uh, pursued their courses of, of academic studies. And we thank you that you've been with them that entire time. And we know that you will be with them as they go forward. So let this be not a stopping point for them, but, but a leaping off point where they head off into the future. Not just learning uh, the things of academics that their mind might become more accomplished, but even more so learning what it means to walk with you and knowing you and your love and your faithfulness. May they know that truth with all of their heart and with all of their soul. Be with them now in Jesus' name. Amen. Please join me in celebrating these graduates. You guys can return to your seats. Thanks so much, and congratulations once again. We begin our worship this morning with the words of the 62nd Psalm, verses 1 and 2. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. Would you rise with me and sing our opening hymn, hymn number 151.
you'll look in your bulletin, you'll find that there's a corporate prayer of confession printed. Let's, in unison, offer it up to the God we've come to worship. Most holy and righteous God, we confess that our decisions are smoke and vapor. We do not glorify you or behave according to your will. Forgive us. Save us from ourselves, from the treachery of our perverse nature, from denying your charge against our offenses, from a life of continual rebellion against you, from wrong principles, views, and ends. For we know that all our thoughts, affections, desires, and pursuits are alienated from you. We have acted as if we hated you, though you are love itself. Our thoughts, words, and deeds are evil in your sight. Drive us not from your presence, but wound our hearts that they may be healed. Break them that you might make them whole. For the sake of Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's take a moment now to silently confess our sins as well. What a blessing it is for the believer to have the words of Hebrews 8. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Let us give glory to this gracious God. As you are, would you join me in a word of prayer? Most holy and awesome God, you have indeed searched us and know us. And this is truly a frightening matter. For you are holy and we are sinners standing before you, justly deserving your wrath. But you have, through Jesus Christ, forgiven our sins and enabled us to come before your throne to offer our praises and to petition you with our requests. So only because we are blood-bought, we confidently pray now, boldly approaching the throne of grace. The recent events of terrorism in London weigh heavily on our hearts and minds, along with fears that similar events could take place here. 
We pray that you would help us to truly trust in you, to live not as people of fear, but as people of faith. And we pray that all those who are hurting as a result of these most recent events would seek and find refuge in you, that you would be their comfort. At the same time, there are many among us who stand in need as well. We ask that you would be with those who are ailing, those who are hurting, those who are weak and vulnerable, those who are needy, be it spiritually, emotionally, or materially, those who are lonely, those who in recent weeks have received devastating news of various sorts, those who struggle with depression, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness but know not the path that they should follow. You know best what each of us needs, and ultimately only you can provide it. So we commend ourselves and, and all for whom we pray fully to your care. We pray that you might do a mighty work in our lives, not just for our benef benefit, but even more so for your glory. Cause our church to have an increasing sense of your holiness and of your grace. And help us to better realize our role and our place within your kingdom cause us to be dissatisfied with church life as usual, but to long for more as a church. Be with our session and help them to lead with humility and with love, but at the same time with wisdom and creativity. And Lord, we pray that you would constantly remind us of our own need, of the fact that apart from you, we can do nothing. At the same time, though, remind us, Father, that we have a new identity. For you have united us with the one who receives all honor and glory and power and dominion forever and ever, even Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Now in response to God's grace to us, let us return to him a portion of that with which he so richly has blessed us.
gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your Holy Spirit to indwell us, to be our helper, protector, guide, and best friend. We pray that we may not grieve him and that we may always feel his comfort. With grateful hearts, we offer these gifts to you, praying in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. As Jesus taught his disciples, let us now pray together the Lord's Prayer. Our Father,
Our sermon text today is Luke 21, verses 5 through 38. It's a long text. Uh, normally, as, as we cover these passages, as we worked our way through the Gospel of Luke, and, and now getting closer and closer to the end, we, we walk through the passages verse by verse. But this week it's going to be a little different. Uh, we're, we're, we're going to fly through it, or maybe fly over this passage. We're going to bounce around within it, and, and even more than normal, it might be helpful for you to have your Bible open in your lap as I preach, because we're, we're not going to touch on every verse of the passage as we work our way through it, but instead we're going to cover some of the themes that are drawn up out of the passage, and, and if we're going to do this well, it's going to require the Lord's help. So before we look to this passage, let's look to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you now and we ask that you would speak to us today. I am but a feeble man, not strong of intellect or eloquence, but you are a mighty God and your word is living, it is powerful, and it works in and through us. We pray that that would happen here today. May we see you more clearly. May we love you more deeply. And may we be conformed more and more to the likeness of Christ Jesus our Lord, in whose name we ask it. Amen. Luke 21, verses 5 through 38. This is the inspired word of God. While some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will the, be a sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter in, for these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written 
Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in these days, for there will be a great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled, and there will be signs and sun and moon and stars and on earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world, for the powers of heaven will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the leaves. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. So as I said, this is a long passage. It's a, it's a somewhat complex passage. It's a passage that, that includes uh, much diversity of opinion, what exactly it's talking about. And so, so it's not exactly the easiest passage on which to preach. But, but if we're going to look at it here, we need to just jump right in, I think, because, because otherwise we, we won't get to the end of it. And so we jump right in, and, and, and I just want to today look at a few things. I want to first issue a correction and then notice an exhortation, and then finally see a few applications. First of all, the correction. This is, this is graduate Sunday here. Uh, many students, not just here, but around town, around the nation, have graduated recently. Uh, I was a part just this past Friday night of Waterbrook Christian Academy's graduation service, and it was a, a joy to be a part of that service on Friday night. Uh, you know, sometimes they call graduation services commencement services, and I, I used to find that to be a very odd term for them because, because the graduation service is, is marking the completion of high school for the students, and a commencement, one would think, is the beginning of something. And, and it would seem that that would be at the beginning of the year, maybe, you have commencement service. But, but it's at the end of the year, at the end of the high school experience, because what it's marking is the commencement of the rest of their lives. It's, it's a leaping off point going into the future. It's looking at what the students are going to do and become on the basis of all that they've learned and acquired in their studies as high school students or college students. We like to look to the future, don't we? It can be somewhat scary at times, though, sometimes because we don't know what is coming. 
And we're worried about what is coming. Sometimes it can be scary because we do know what is coming. Perhaps that's even scarier yet. And so prophecy is, has a certain allure to us, doesn't it? I, I can remember even as a little kid hearing about Nostradamus and just being amazed at, at this guy who had predicted all these things that somehow came true, it seems. And, and there are plenty of people who look at things like horoscopes or, or psychics because they, they want to know the future. And that's what this text is about. It's about the future, looking to the future and what things will be occurring in the future. But there's a problem, and that is how we instinctively read this text. Uh, we, we tend to have uh, a view of this to, to see this passage, and, and really we do this oftentimes with lots of passages, to see, see them as if we are the audience that is being spoken to directly and immediately. We see this as, as if Jesus was speaking directly to us in the 21st century and seeing this from our perspective. And it's an important key in understanding this passage that we need to see it first from the perspective of the disciples in the first century as they were hearing these words. And then, understanding what their understanding would have been, apply it to our own lives. Another important key, we need to make sure that we know what he's talking about. Oftentimes, I, I know I've, I've maybe overheard a conversation where two people are talking about something, and I think I know what they're talking about, and, and then they say something. It turns out I was talk, they, they were talking about something other than what I thought, but, but I made certain inferences from, from what they were talking about, about what I thought they were talking about, and I ended up totally headed down the wrong path. We need to make sure we don't do that here. In verse 27... We see perhaps a, a, what many people look to as a key verse in this passage. We will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. It's a reference back to Daniel 7. And because of this passage, a lot of people think that, that this specific passage as, as a whole is speaking about the return of Christ in the last day. And that's what the whole thing is speaking about. Many take the prophecies to be returning, uh, the return of Christ in, in judgment and, and just that. And some, some versions of the Bible even are, are, are problematic and unhelpful in, in what they include. They'll have section headings. I saw one in my studies this week where it actually had the, the heading over this section. It said the return of Christ in judgment. And that was the heading for the whole chapter. But that's unhelpful, I think, because while the chapter does speak about this in part, I think most of the chapter is speaking about something else, something altogether different. In fact, something that has already occurred. Now, you might say, wait a second, that's not a prediction if you predict something that already occurred. But remember, we need to look at this from the perspective of the disciples. Something that occurred after the disciples, but before us. Now, why do I think that the text is, is dealing with something else other than just the coming of Christ in the last day? Well, there's some reasons from the text itself. Verse 20, uh, we see that uh, the Lord is talking about Jerusalem being surrounded by armies. And he says in verse 21, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter 
in. Brothers and sisters, when Christ returns on the last day to execute judgment, it will do you no good to flee to the mountains. You will not be able to hide. I remember when I was a kid, or when my, my children were, were little kids, just toddlers, uh, just, just barely walking or even crawling around the house, and I'd kind of chase them around. And they'd, they'd scamper away from me as if they actually had a chance of getting away. But inevitably, I would catch them. They had no chance of getting away. And that's how we are with God and his judgment. We cannot avoid the judgment of God. Each and every one of us will be judged. You cannot hide from him. Adam tried that in the garden. It did not work, and it will not work for us. We can never hide from God. We can never outrun God. He will always catch up to us. In verse 23, alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, he, he said, boy, it, it's really bad for them. I, why would it be worse? We're talking about the judgment of Christ on those days. Truly, I say to you, this generation, verse 32, will not pass away until all has taken a place. Well, well, if Jesus is talking about his return, if he is talking about the day of judgment, and he says that this generation will not pass away until all has taken place, then one of two things is true. Either, either Jesus was wrong, or he actually wasn't talking about that. He wasn't talking about the end of the world. Those are the only two options. And if Jesus was wrong about that, then we have no reason to trust him about anything else. If we come to the point where we decide that Jesus was wrong when he said that this generation will not pass away until all has taken place, then we might as well get up and leave right now. There's no reason for us to be here. But we are all here because we know that he was wrong. He must have been right. And so, so we see that he must have been talking about something else. So what cataclysmic event could he possibly have been talking about in this passage as he's talking about all these things? Well, if we look through the annals of history, we see that in the year 70 A.D., just about 35 or 40 years after Jesus is saying these very words, that the Roman Emperor Titus put down a rebellion by the Jews. And in the midst of this military action, some historians tell us that over a million Jews perished in Jerusalem. Almost the entire city was burnt to the ground. Israel, as a result of it, ceased to be a political entity. And yes, the temple was demolished, stone upon massive stone. And this is actually what Jesus is foretelling in this passage. It was for those who were there listening to his words, a cataclysmic event, the likes of which we can hardly imagine. We consider terror attacks yesterday in London, which remind us perhaps of 9-11 of and, and of that that terrible and cataclysmic event, how earth-shaking it was for Americans in general and New Yorkers in particular, and, and how in a very real sense the world as it was before that point ceased to exist in that way. But even though we used hyperbolic language like, like it being the end of the world, the world did indeed continue on. And that's what Jesus is saying with regard to the events of 70 AD. He, he says this will be terrible. It will seem 
so tumultuous that it will seem as if the end of the world is upon you, but know that the world will go on from that point. He lists in verses 8 through 12 a series of, of horrible things that will happen, things that make it seem like the end of the world is coming. But he says, note in verse 8, see that you are not led astray. In essence, he's saying these things are going to happen. They're going to seem terrible. It will seem like the end of the world is happening, but it is not. False teachers will come. There will be wars, natural disasters, earthquakes, uh, famines, pestilence, great signs from heaven, persecution. Don't think that these are necessarily signs of the end of the world. You see, Jesus isn't interested in setting a date and, and letting people know that here's where the end of the world is going to happen. He's interested in doing it for the disciples, and he's not interested in doing it for us. Instead, what he's, he's actually looking to do is to encourage them and encourage us. And so we have an exhortation, verse 9. When you hear of wars and tumults, and all these other things for that matter, do not be terrified. Do not be terrified is the message he had for his disciples. Now, I, I want to apply the same lesson to our lives. Do not be terrified in the face of all these terrible things. Now, we could just kind of wrench it out of its context and apply it to ourselves and, and, and just take it that way, but that would neither be, be faithful to the text or now how we are supposed to study the Bible. I, I hope that if you've learned anything from me in all my preaching here, that, that, that first of all, you've learned of the gospel, that Jesus, Jesus loves his people, that he has died for sinners, and that each and every one of us is a sinner in need of salvation, and that if we turn to him, we can have that salvation. But if we don't turn to him, we will not have that salvation, that salvation can be found in him and in him alone. I hope you know that. But if there's a second thing below that, it is the importance of context in reading your Bible. Context is king. Make sure that you you read your Bible in its appropriate context. And so we realize that we are not the ones to whom Jesus was speaking when he says, do not be terrified. He's speaking to those first century Jews about the temple and it falling in 70 AD. And he, he's saying that they ought not to, in that context, be terrified. But we can apply it to ourselves, and we'll get there in a minute. Secondly, we need to realize the significance of the temple. We need to realize the significance of it. Com commentators agree that two things set apart the temple. One was its sheer size. It's it set on a square about a thousand feet by a thousand feet. And it was enclosed by a massive outer wall. On, on three sides, there were three rows of pillars lining the walls. And on the fourth side, there were four rows of pillars. It was huge and it was magnificent. And the second thing that marked it out was its beauty. Listen to the words of the ancient historian Josephus, speaking of the temple. The whole of the outer works of the temple was in the highest degree worthy of admiration, for it was completely covered with gold plates, 
which when the sun was shining on them glittered so dazzlingly that they blinded the eyes of the beholders, not less than when one gazed at the sun's rays themselves. And on the other sides where there was no gold, the blocks of marble were of such a pure white that to strangers who had never previously seen them from a distance, they looked like a mountain of snow. It was considered one of the great wonders of the Roman world. These features were there very intentionally that they might invite and draw hearts into worship of the true and living God. But perhaps most importantly to those in that first century audience, the temple was the very symbol of Israel as a nation. And this is why they were so concerned when Jesus spoke of the temple crumbling and falling, why they said to him in verse 7, when will these things be and what will be the signs of these things that they're about to take place? Mark tells us that this actually took place a little bit after uh, the, the words that preceded it uh, as they had left and gone to the Mount of Olives. Jesus spoke about this uh, cataclysmic event and, and, and they asked these questions and, and they could hardly imagine even existing, going on after the temple had fallen. They could hardly imagine what life would be like. It seemed that Jesus was indeed predicting no less than the end of the world. We're blessed with a beautiful building. It's a wonderful facility we have. Many of you here sacrificed and gave, and you've loved this building. That's wonderful glad that it's a special place for you. But it pales in comparison to how they felt about the temple. The temple of Jerusalem was far more beautiful. It was far more important. And so we need to consider that, that when they were thinking about how they, uh, how they heard these things, they, they heard Jesus, Jesus speaking he says, for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Just think how you would feel if, if Jesus came and he spoke to you with absolute authority and absolute certainty that there will not be one stone of this church left. It will be demolished. It will be gone. Some of you have been here long enough that you remember there being another church down the street. And you with sadness know that reality of there not being one stone left from that church. It was even worse for them yet, though, because it wasn't just their place of worship. It was this national symbol, the primary symbol of their nation. And, and the problem is that, that, that they had come, in a sense, as sadly many of us do, prioritize two things even above God one was their religiosity going through the religious motions taking the right steps you know they go to the temple and they they do the sacrifices and they they follow all the feasts and and do all the things 
but it becomes more important than God himself and actually meeting with him. And for many of them, and for many of us, I fear, nation becomes a more important thing than God. It, more, it spends more time consuming our thoughts and our passions and our concerns. So it was that when Jesus had just cleansed the temple in the days before this, it was an act of church discipline against the church itself. Our denomination's book of order speaks about church discipline. It says it has three purposes. It says, it says one, to maintain the honor of God. Two, to restore the sinner. And three, to remove the offense. And this is what Jesus was trying to do. Uh, trying first to maintain the honor of God and restore the sinner. But when, when the church, as it were, refused to repent, refused to be restored, refused to rightly honor God, and there was no choice but for it to be removed. And this is what Jesus is foretelling in the events of 70 AD, that the church itself will be removed. A foreign power was coming in to overthrow Israel, but make no mistake, it was a picture of God's judgment against a nation and against a peoples who were supposed to be gods and his alone and it would culminate in the destruction of the temple but even as the temple itself was being destroyed know this even before it was being destroyed there was a new temple being built there was a new temple being built not a temple built with stones by human hands no but a temple built by God Jesus was that temple Jesus is that temple. He is the only place that men and women can go to so that they might meet with God. He is the only place that they can go to where they can find atoning sacrifice for their sins. He is the only place that they can go to to worship and worship in spirit and in truth. And that's why he said in John 2.19, destroy this temple and in three days I will build it up. He was speaking, of course, of his body. How he was replacing the temple. He was our means of atonement. He was our means of reconciliation. And through his death on the cross and his resurrection and through his ascension to God on high where he reigns even today, he was vindicated in all that he had said. So though the temple may fall stone from stone and be utterly destroyed, the God to whom it pointed will stand firm forever. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. So though this was a terrible thing, it was no less something that occurred under the province, providence of God by the decree of God. In your bulletin, I, I hope you guys notice this and, and look at it each week. There's a page toward the back that has Westminster Shorter Catechism questions of the week. We have sometimes one question, sometimes two or three in there. And, and last week's questions included question number seven. What are the decrees of God? The answer, the decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. And next week you'll see question 11, which 
asks, what are God's works of providence? Answer, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. Whatsoever comes to pass, all his creatures and all their actions. Those are, those, those are pretty expansive terms, aren't they? Whatsoever. All. We remember that God speaks in this way often. Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for those who are called according to his purpose. And that's why it's such a shame that the words of Jesus often drive some people to fear. Because they're Ultimately, we should know that he's in control. He's ultimately accomplishing his purposes, and he calls us to trust in him. Principle, faith and fear contradict each other. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't be concerned about things. Certainly, there are things about which we should be concerned. What I'm saying is that we should not be paralyzed by fear or frenzied into a panic. Not because we won't face hardship or difficulty. Oh, we will. Jesus promises as much. You know, it's funny, just yesterday I was looking at some things online, doing some research, and I, I thought it'd be interesting to look up a list. I just Googled promises of Jesus. And one of the first things popped was 200 promises of Jesus. And I looked through them. And you know what? There were, there were many wonderful promises that spoke of the blessings that are ours, both the temporal and eternal blessings that are ours. But you know what? They didn't include all the promises of Jesus. Those, those feel-good lists don't generally include the things like verse 16 of our text. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. You know, Jesus isn't speaking to us now, remember. He's speaking to the first century disciples, but it is true of us as well. If we are following Jesus faithfully, we will at times be hated for it. We will be opposed for it. But just as it was for them, so too for us. Verse 13, this will be an opportunity to bear witness to him trust in God, to demonstrate your dependence, not upon yourself, but upon his faithfulness, to pray for enemies and to love them, even as they are hating you, and to joyfully sing and worship Christ, even in the midst of trials and tribulations. Now, some of us can't imagine doing this. You see others go through things, and they respond so well. You say, I could never do that. And you're right, you never could. And neither could they, apart from the grace of God. But God gives grace as it is needed. He doesn't peddle out hypothetical grace for a hypothetical situation. He gives real grace for a real situation. So in the midst of troubles, he gives us the grace we need. And some of you are facing unspeakable trials right now. It's been really a hard season in the life of our church. I've spoken with more people over the last month or two who have faced just agonizing difficulties and problems, trials of all kinds. 
And I just want to encourage you that Jesus is with you. He's giving grace to help you through this time. Whether it's you or others for whom you are praying, members of this church or people like Andrew Brunson who we've been praying for who's in a Turkish prison still for almost eight months now. Know that you will face opposition and trials. The one who faced the most unspeakable of trials some 2,000 years ago said to his followers, remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And in addition to that, we, we face trials because we live in a broken and fallen world with Adam's sin, creation fell, and, and it has remained fallen since. And as long as it is a fallen world that we live in, we will face opposition and difficulties. Just this week, I was discussing with some folks from the church why bad things happen to good people. And I pointed out, first of all, we need to remember that none of us are truly good. We're all sinners. We all stand in desert of judgment. And beyond that, we do live in a broken world, as I said. But after I had this conversation, I came across a quote on Facebook that a friend of mine had posted. A friend I told you about a couple months ago, a friend who had just lost a one-month-old child suddenly, unexpectedly. I saw him post this quote just the other day. It's a quote from David Paulson. It's about the Psalms. He said, Psalm after Psalm demonstrates our sufferings are the context in which we experience the love of God, both to comfort us and to change us. We are comforted in our afflictions as we learn of God's promises and powers. We are changed in our afflictions as we learn to take refuge in God rather than in vain idols. Our helper, he, amidst the flood of mortal ills prevailing. You see, you will face trials and troubles and tribulations, but you have this wonderful promise of Jesus. When you face them, he will be with you and he will never leave you nor forsake you. And greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And he has endured every kind of trial and every kind of temptation and every kind of pain and every kind of agony and every kind of suffering. He knows what it is to go through them and he has overcome them. And if he is in you, then you will overcome them as well. And through them, ultimately, you will be conformed to the likeness of his image. You will be made more like Christ. And his purpose, we must remember, is not just to make you happy. His purpose is not to just give you what you want. It is not to make your life easy, but rather it is that he might be glorified through you. And indeed, he will. And one day he will return. And Paul tells us this in Philippians 1, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And so as Christ tells us in verse 33, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Heaven and earth, catch this, heaven and earth themselves are more transient than the word of Christ Jesus.
but as we sung before, we need not be fearful of the schemes and machinations of Satan for one little word will fail him. So whatever we face, let us live for Christ's glory. And should we die, let us die for Christ's glory. Whatever we do, may all glory be to Christ. Please pray. Our Heavenly Father, we we just pause for a moment and realize how quickly we are to be robbers, thieves, stealing your glory. Cure us of this. Help us to look not to ourselves primarily, but to you. And looking to you, seeing your love, the love with which you have loved us even though we were enemies, may we learn to love others in that same way. And may we exalt you above all things, above ourselves, above goods and kindred, above even our mortal lives, for the life you have secured for us is life eternal. And we give thanks. In Jesus' name. Amen. Please rise now and sing our concluding hymn. It's on an insert in your bulletin. All glory be to Christ.
All glory be to Christ indeed. Now receive the benediction. May the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord.